Well, today we're going to begin the study of a document out of the New Testament that most of us have grown up all our lives calling a book, and it's really actually a letter. And it's not completely unlike some of the letters that you and I write. I mean, it's written by a particular person. It's written to, in this case, a particular group of people, some of whom even have their names listed in this letter. It's written to this group of people who formed a particular church that actually existed in an ancient city, complete with its own culture. It was written almost 2,000 years ago, and it was written actually to address the issues of that particular group of people who lived in that particular city, who had that particular church with that particular culture 2,000 years ago. And I admit that as I'm kind of thinking through that, that's probably not the most compelling way to encourage you to study this particular book that's really a letter. Because you hear that, and you think about it the same thing that you think about much of the rest of the Bible, if you're honest. You think, what in the world does that have to say to me? Because, I mean, Tom, if we just replay that for a second, okay, what you're telling me is this thing that you want to spend five weeks looking into is a letter written by a guy to a particular group of people whose names are listed, at least some of them, and my name's not included. And they comprised their church, but I'm in my church, and that was in their city, and I'm in my city, and that had their culture 2,000 years ago. We have our own culture, and it's 2011. Oh, yeah, it was written to address their issues Presumably not mine. And that's the catch. But when you think that way, by the way, you lose not just this particular letter, you lose this whole book. You lose the Bible completely because that line of reasoning applies to every document in it. And that's tragic. You know, one of the realities of the people of God is that the people of God, with some pretty major exceptions, have been a people of the book. And in those times when we lost the book, it was to our impoverishment in every facet of our being. And it was to the impoverishment of the whole world for the mission of God just isn't all that vibrant apart from God's Word. But by and large, the people of God have, throughout history, been a people of this book. This book has been our guide. This book has been our friend. This book has been our teacher. This book has been our mentor. It is to this book that we have gone for solace, for comfort, for strength, for wisdom, for joy, for hope when we couldn't find it in anything else or anywhere else. It is through the message of this book that God gives birth to our faith. And then it is through the knowledge and understanding of the God of this book and his purposes and ways as we study it and study it and study it and come to know more and more and more that our faith grows. It is by this book that God sets the horizons of our imaginations. It is through this book that he establishes all of our categories of thought. This book is the lens through which we are to see the world. We are to see God. We are to see ourselves. We are to see each other. And yet I fear that, particularly in recent generations, we've lost or at least we're losing this book. Why? For more reasons than I have time to list. But at least in part because we kind of understand that, I mean, you know, it's sort of an ancient document and it's written to ancient people who lived in ancient cities and made up ancient nations or maybe they're ancient churches. And I mean, good grief. What in the world does it have to say to me until we open it? And by the blessing of God's Spirit, until we hear its voice. 
It's a familiar voice to the believer in Christ. What does Jesus say about his voice? My sheep know my voice. They listen. And we realize that, you know, this ancient book written to ancient people, all that stuff, speaks just as clearly to us today as it did to them. You know, one of the constants in history, one of the lessons of history documented is that human nature never changes. Count on it. Our technology changes, our politics change somewhat, probably not that much. Our medical abilities change, you know, our our communications abilities change. All kinds of things are changing. Constantly things are changing. We are living in a day when things are changing more quickly than at any other time previously in history, and they're not slowing down. They're speeding up. But here's the deal. The heart of man is exactly the same heart as the heart of Adam and Eve that walked out of the garden. Count on it. Our issues are the same. Our needs are the same. Our problems are the same. Our sin is the same. Nothing's different, and the Lord doesn't change either, and neither does His Word. The wisdom of this Word, the principles of this Word, the comfort of this Word, the joy of this Word, the hope of this Word, the message of this Word applies to every person everywhere. It transcends culture and city and time and age and technology and and all of the things that change. And so today, we're going to begin a study of the book of Colossians, which is really a letter. And it's written by the Apostle Paul to a particular group of people located in an ancient city that, frankly, doesn't even exist anymore, known as Colossae. It was located in the Lycus Valley. It was found in what is today Turkey. And actually, we're not positive that we know exactly where it was. We think we know where it was, but we're not even sure. And it had its own culture and its own people and its own issues and its own thing. And the message of this book is just as vibrant for me and just as important for me as it was for them. The message lives on. And I want to give you the message in a nutshell. It's know the Word, meaning this book, the Bible. Not just this letter, but the whole of this book called the Bible. And live the Word. That's it. It's know the Word, live the Word. And that's the big idea, not just for today and not just for the next four weeks as we continue to look into this letter, but that is the big idea, as Matt said, for the entirety of this year for our church. We want to become, again, a people of this book. People who not only know it, but people who give expression to it in their lives. Know the Word, live the Word. The letter of Colossians begins with a greeting that was really common in that particular time period. In other words, it follows a common pattern. It's written like an ancient letter. It's an ancient letter. And it follows the patterns of an ancient letter. And so it starts with a greeting that was the greeting that was the norm in those days. It was normal in those days for the author of a letter to identify himself right at the very beginning. I think we ought to go back to that because, you know, I hate flipping four pages back to see who actually sent the thing. They told you right out of the gate. And so Paul is going to say, hey, um, Paul, that's the normal part. And then he's going to say something really abnormal, something very, very different. It starts like this. He says, Paul, that's the common part. But then he adds this, and this is the uncommon part. He says, an apostle of Christ Jesus, which practically speaking means that the words that he gives us in this book are not just words that are authored by a guy named Paul. They're authored by the sovereign God of the universe through a guy named Paul. And so they speak to all of us. 
not just to these people. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, a specially called messenger of God, one to whom Christ himself risen, revealed himself, called for the purpose of delivering God's words. By the will of God, he says, meaning by God's choice, not his own, and Timothy, his protege, our brother. And then he tells you to whom it's written, and it's so cool, because who is it written to? And it's not a trick question. It's written to the Christians at Colossae, we know that much. But what does he call them? Because if the words transcend their day and they apply to believers everywhere, then they apply to me. And they apply to you. He says, to the saints... The word means actually holy ones. Now, you know, you got to just kind of pause there and smile, don't you? I mean, is that you? Go look in the mirror after that. If you're confused on this, ask your family. They're going to clear it up for you. I mean, you ought to stop there and go, really? The holy ones? Yeah, and it's not just the word of Paul. To the holy ones, to the saints, and to the faithful brothers, truthfully, Really? Yeah, actually. In Christ at Colossae. And then he adds, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Paul is saying, look, if you're a believer in Jesus, you are made holy. You are made into something that you're not by the one who took upon himself your every stain and washed him away with his blood. You're holy. How? Through him. Through faith. And you're made faithful as you come to know him, as you're conformed to his image, as he molds and shapes your character, primarily since it's the big idea for today, this series in the year, through this book. You become what you're not natively. You become faithful. He is faithful to you, by the way, also, even though you and I are very oftentimes unfaithful to him. And he's saying that you become family. And not just with each other. But like with every believer who has ever lived or ever will live, think about how diverse a group that is. We become family together with that group, even though we are incredibly diverse. And how do we become family? How is it that we're one, where we're conformed to the one image of the one Son through the Spirit's operation in our lives through this book? You're given the grace and peace of God by the one who purchased you. And in grace offers you peace with God and the peace of God at the price of his own life. It's glorious. And by the way, that message, this is going to start to sound familiar today. Guess where it's found? It's found in this book, this collection of documents authored by people through the Holy Spirit. Know the Word, live the Word. Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, that's who chose me, and Timothy, my protege, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And then he continues this rather ordinary greeting. It follows that customary greeting pattern of an ancient letter, but it's extraordinary in the way that he says it. He follows it with a thanksgiving and with a prayer. Please, don't miss what he's thankful for and don't miss what he prays for. He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Why? What is the source of your thanksgiving? I mean, what makes you so thankful that you remember to be thankful to God every time you pray, so it seems? 
Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the practical ways that you live... That's not what it says, but it is what it says. He said, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. And he's not saying, you know, these guys get together once a week and it's Sunday morning and they all gather around and everybody gets a hug and everybody gets told that they're loved and then they all leave and different to one another's needs. It's quite the opposite of that. I mean, maybe they hugged and, you know, I think they talk about a holy kiss somewhere in the New Testament. Frankly, I'm glad that's sort of out of, you know, style at this point, but <laughs> makes me nervous. But that's not what he's talking about. He's saying, what I've heard about is your faith in Christ and of the way that you're living it out by practical means of expressing your love to one another. You know the needs of this community of which you are a part, and all of you together are meeting these needs, and what's motivating them to do it? Because he tells us that too. He says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Can you see that? Can you smell that? Can you taste that? Can you touch that? Can you spend that? No. Can't. They're impoverishing themselves in this life that they might enrich themselves in the next life that they haven't seen, smelled, heard about, tasted, or touched. Well, they have heard about it, I guess, but they haven't heard its music except by faith. How do they know about it? It's a familiar theme already. He says, of this you have heard before in the what? In the word of truth, the gospel, which is found, parenthetically, in this book that we call the Bible. It's a pretty significant book. And Paul is saying, guys, I just want you to know, I am so excited, I am so thrilled, I am so, like, moved. I, I just, like, I, when I heard about your faith and the way that you're living it out, when I heard about your knowledge of God's Word and of just of the ways that it is producing good fruit in you, when I found out the way that you love one another in real and practical ways, not just hugs, not just kisses, not just I love you, but no, really, seriously, helping one another out. When I heard about all of that, I was so excited. I mean, I started having to pray about you with thanksgiving to God every day, and I needed to write and just let you know that. He's saying, you guys know the Word of God, and you guys are living it out. And what is the Word? Because he identifies it specifically. He calls it the gospel. And then he says, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is doing what? Because it's agricultural. It is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you since the day that you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. So what is Paul saying about this Word of God, this Bible? He's saying the same thing that Jesus said. He's saying that the Word of God is like a seed. It is made to grow and bear fruit. It's its nature. But it only grows and bears fruit when it finds good soil, when it's planted in a heart that is receptive to it. So in other words, he's saying, look, if you're looking and there's lack of fruit, the problem is not the seed, it's the soil. And yet one of the coolest things that I've kind of had some time to dwell on this year or this week is that there's some really good soil around here. It really is. You know, we had our first staff meeting of the year Tuesday, and, uh, you know, part of the conversation that we had was just some of the really cool things that are happening in this church, inside of the church and outside of the church, in this community, through people 
in this church. I mean, we got so excited about it, I said, you know, we need to make a did-you-know list. So I started making a did-you-know list, and then I expanded it a little bit into some of last year, this year that we just completed, and I started thinking, you know, I bet nobody even knows this. I mean, some of you know some of this stuff, but I, I just want to share some of this with you because I think it will be encouraging. It was amazing to me. I mean, did you know, for example, that after the earthquake last year in Haiti, we put together like $20,000, you know, in relief money. Now, that's just the money that came through our church coffers. That has no bearing. I have no idea what the total number was because every single week we got up and said, give to these guys, give to these guys, and give to these guys. That's who we endorse. But it's great. We put together 300 family relief boxes. Everything a family's going to need for at least a week, shipped them all over. We put together five pallets worth of relief supplies, shipped them over. We became sort of a transitional church for medical teams that were flying into Fort Lauderdale and then through Fort Lauderdale to Haiti. You didn't know that, did you? But we'd pick them up at the airport, we'd house them for the night, we'd get them at the airport, we'd pick them up as they're coming back, we'd house them for the night or two nights or however long it needed to be, got them around, got them. That that went on for some time. That's just people in this church doing things. We had $2 million in uh, medical supplies that passed through our church. One of our members somehow procured all of these antibiotics. We had $2 million in antibiotics in our parlor for like a week. It was freaking me out. I didn't know whether to get a guard or, you know, or like just keep the door locked. Should we change the lock? I'm thinking, you know, I don't think that antibiotics is like a hot item on the black market. But it's awesome. You didn't know that, did you? Because we didn't tell anyone. We sent over 20 people to Haiti to do relief work and to scout out different ways to do long-term community renewal. Planted three farming gardens that are instructional to help these people learn how to use their land better. The idea is to create little micro-economies. It's not just to throw money at the problem. It's to help them help themselves. That's the point. That work continues. Still going on. And I just didn't know if you knew that. Did you know that last year, for the third year in a row, we sent a people or a team of people to Honduras, not only to do outreach ministry for kids this year, but, but also to help them learn how to do it and to equip them to do Sunday school. We gave them six years' worth of curriculum written in Spanish. We built a playground in this community, and it's a community, parenthetically, that was founded by two people from our church. They went over there after Hurricane Mitch had wiped out the whole area. They got the land granted by the government. They built their 60 homes in this community, 300 people. The government built them a school. They have clean water. It's awesome. So we built them a playground. We're putting nine of their community people through seminary so they can found a church. Do you know this past year, Rio became a founding member of Hope South Florida, this multi-church or multi-denominational eight-church homelessness initiative. A couple of people from Rio spearheaded the Thanksgiving dinner, and we fed 200 homeless people that day, the day after Thanksgiving. Eighteen of our middle school and high school students went over to Hope Central. This was a fun day. They filled two 30-foot dumpsters and two moving vans full of, uh, will you go with the word stuff, okay, that was in Hope Central. That all had to be taken out before they could renovate the building. It was like step one, and they went over there and worked all day and did it. Did you know that right now we are renovating a duplex that they're calling the Rio duplex and should come online probably end of this month or end of next? Didn't know that. Homeless families are going to be living in those duplex or in that duplex for decades. One of our Rio people donated a piece of land at the end of last year to us to develop and figure out and 
and to use as part of our homelessness initiative, as part of Hope South Florida. One of our members now works in a key staff position at Hope South Florida. Another one of our members is interviewing with four kids of South Florida, another ministry we big-time support and that we have a lot of employees at. Doug Souter, the president of Four Kids, told me about a year ago, he said, you guys have more people from Rio working at Four Kids of South Florida per capita, like, you know, for the size of your church. And that's not completely fair because Calvary's like 20,000 people, so. But, he said, than anyone else. Do you know that? For the second year in a row, we raised more money for Hope Women's Centers, Walk for Life, than any other organization. And we tied for first place in terms of how many walkers we had out. Do you know that during the holiday season alone, 38 people from our church were made meals that were then delivered to them by other people in our church? And then we said to everybody in the church, okay, here's the thing. If you know somebody, like in your world, people with whom you work, live, or play that you think could use a meal, let us know. We distributed another 100 that way. One family donated a car to a single dad with two kids. One community group, and I love this story, one of the guys in this community group led his hairdresser to Christ. And he's a man in the homosexual community here in Fort Lauderdale. And then that man led his partner to Christ, who then died of cancer all in a very short window of time. And then this community group, or some of the people in it, went over to this guy's apartment and helped him paint his whole apartment. It's just sort of a way of saying, you know, starting a new life here. I love that. I think that's the right message. I think that's the right packaging for the message. A couple of community groups did Christmas for a few other families in this church who, you know, right now are struggling. And guess who was blessed by that? Everybody. Everybody. Some Rio members are right now building a handicapped ramp. This is one I didn't have any clue about for a disabled man who was brought to one of our members by Channel 4 News. Go figure. I guess the guy now, he lives in a trailer. He lives, leaves his wheelchair outside the trailer and crawls in. Not for long. Do you know that? I haven't even touched on what's going on over at the school, but the point is, for every one thing I just said, I could, I could list another 50. There are people who are going, hey man, if you knew, you know, if I knew you were making a list, I would have sent you an email. Did you know? And I don't. But the Lord knows. And do you know what all that made me do? It made me get down on my knees literally and thank God. I felt a little like Paul, maybe, at least in that regard. Because that's not the kind of thing that we do naturally. By nature, we are selfish, every single one of us. We're not selfless. By nature, it's about us. It's not about anybody else. This is evidence of the activity of God at work among the people of God. This is the seed of the Word of God finding good soil and then doing what it does by nature when it finds good soil. It brings forth fruit, you see, and when you stop at the end of one year and you start at the end of the next year and you hear a message like this, I think you've got to pause and say, okay, what about me? Were there any stories like that about me last year? And if not, here's the good news. It's a new year. It's a fresh slate. It's an opportunity to begin. So Paul is thankful for these guys, and he's thankful for all that he sees going on, even though he wasn't their pastor. And we know that because in verse 7 he says, just as you learned it, meaning the Word of God, this gospel Word of God from who? From Epaphras, another 
protege of Paul, our beloved fellow servant, he describes him, and he, he says, this Epaphras, and this is so cool, is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And Paul's saying, look, and I was so excited, I just had to write and let you know. I had to tell you. But that's not where the letter ends. That's not even where his prayer ends. He's thankful in prayer for that, you see, but then he doesn't stop. Why? Because it's not enough. Paul is greedy for the gospel. Paul wants to see more seed planted, that more fruit will come up and sprout. He wants more transformation. He wants more gospel renewal. He wants more and more for the glory of Christ, you see. He's saying, look, I'm thankful for this little bonfire that we got going here, but here's what we need to do with the fire. Pour gasoline all over it. The fire is burning, he's saying, and now let's make it as big as it it can be. I want to see it from like outer space. He says, and so from the day that we heard about all of this stuff, we've not ceased to pray for you. I already told you how I was thankful in prayer, but here's how I haven't ceased to pray for you as well. He says, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom, key word, and understanding, but to what end? Why do I want you to be filled with this? He says, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, Here it is again, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Know the Word, live the Word. And it's interesting to me that he uses the word wisdom on the one hand and the word walk on the other, and he ties them both together into one sentence. Because at least to me, that reminds me of the Proverbs. You know, the word wisdom in the Proverbs speaks of a skill that we develop for living, but how do we develop the skill for living? We develop it by internalizing the truths of the Proverbs and then by living them out. And we become skillful at life. And the word walk speaks of the way that we live. It speaks of the path that we choose in life. And of course, the Proverbs gives us two paths, one that leads to life and one that leads to death. And what it's teaching us in so many words is that truth lived out leads to life and lies lived out lead to death. And every one of us every day of our lives proves that statement to, in fact, be true, usually in both regards as we live a little truth and error. I mean, if you think about it for a minute, you know, if you believe the lie that you're worthless, and then if you live that out, it leads to death. Death of self-esteem, death of dignity, death of confidence, death of just about everything. But what does the Bible say that you're actually worth? It says that God shed the most precious ointment in all of the universe, the blood of His Son for you. And that's a message that, you know, I mean, if you're struggling with self-worth, you need to hear more than once. That's a daily dose deal. It's like taking a pill every day. It's not a one-shot, oh, I know that, I've been to church, boom, I I don't have to hear that anymore. No. As often as you heard you were worthless, you need to hear just how worth and valuable you are. Where do you find that message? In this book all over this book. You know, if you believe the lie that your private sin, that little thing that you've got going on that you think nobody knows about, isn't hurting anyone and you live that out, it leads to death, death of conscience, death of integrity, death of intimacy, death of soul. 
And by the way, what does the Bible say about private sin? You know, it says there's no such thing. It says that you and I have never spent a moment alone, ever, for the Lord God is everywhere. And that is utterly terrifying. Isn't that scary? You know, we all read Psalm 139 and we think it's so great, and it is. I mean, it's like unfathomably great. It's greater even than we realize. But, you know, David talks about the fact that, you know, where can I go to hide from your presence? And we think that what he means by that is he's so happy that he can't go anywhere to get away from God. No, he is utterly traumatized by the fact that he can't get away from God. That's what he's saying. He's like, I got this stuff going on and there's nowhere for me to hide. And he's imploding psychologically. That's what's going on. There's no such thing as a private sin, period. But here's what else this book teaches that even though God knows us fully, He yet shed that precious ointment. He yet invites you to come to Him to be made holy. It's quite the glorious message. It's not one that your heart gets weary of. If you believe the lie that getting married is going to make you happy or getting divorced is going to make you happy or having children is going to make you happy or getting rid of your children is going to make you happy or, you know, making this much money, okay, not enough, okay, this much, okay, not enough, okay, well, maybe, all right, finally, it's going to be, it's going to make you happy and you live that out, it leads to death, death of relationships, death of integrity as you compromise, death of hope as you hit every new plateau, you know, you climb to the top of the mountain, you're all weary and you're real excited because this is going to be it, and it isn't. And death of the joy and satisfaction that could otherwise be yours if you knew the truth and lived it. Truth lived out leads to life. Lies lived out lead to death. And again, where is that truth found? Is that an around-the-water-cooler-at-work deal? You get that on CNN? Wall Street Journal? Or is it in the Word of God? This ancient book that speaks to the human heart in every age, in every circumstance, from the unchangeable God containing His changeless principles. So Paul thanks God for how these people know the Word and they're living in it, and then he prays that God would just pour all the more gasoline upon it, that they would come to know the Word ever and ever more in an ever-increasing fashion so that they can live it out. That's the point. It's not an academic exercise, but he also knows that it's not going to be easy. Living out the Word of God is not easy. It's not something that you and I actually have the power to do. And so he prays that God will give them strength. Verse 11, he says, "'May you be strengthened with a whole lot of power.'" It's not it. All right, he says, may you be strengthened with what I think is probably going to be sufficient power. It's not it either. May you be strengthened with all power. And by that statement, he is calling to mind the power of the infinitely powerful God. May you be strengthened with infinite power. All power according to His glorious might, not my might, not your might. That fails. And to what end? For all endurance and patience with joy. One of the realities of this life that we live is that God ordains for us at times to go through things that we, quite frankly, have to endure. 
And then he calls us to endure them with patience and with joy. That doesn't mean all happy, happy, but but that takes the infinite power of the infinitely powerful God, doesn't it? We need that power. And so he prays, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has what? Qualified you through faith in Christ, through his perfect life, through his atoning death to share in the inheritance in the saints in light. He's talking of heaven again. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness. What do you do in the dark? You stumble. You fall. You run into things. You wander around aimlessly, wondering where you are and where you're going. You suffer from confusion. He's saying, no, he's come and he's plucked you out of that. He's delivered you through Jesus from the domain of darkness, and he's transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption. He has purchased you and the forgiveness of sins. He's paid for your sins on the cross. And where do we get that message? We get it from this book. That's it. So the big idea for the message today, for the series we're doing, and for all of 2011, is know this book. Commit yourself to that. And not just to knowing it, not just collecting up the information, and, but putting it into practice that you might begin to live skillfully, that God might plant all kinds of seed in your heart, all the metaphors work, that the Lord might bring forth good fruit in and through us and so that we can stop at the end of this year and the beginning of next and say, okay, we're going to have to have a three-hour service because I've got a did-you-know list a mile long for His glory. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the gift of the gospel. Lord, and we do thank you for the gift of your word, which teaches us about your son. Father, in which we see ourselves and by which we see ourselves. And we see ourselves accurately, and it isn't pretty. And yet, Lord, by which we hear the voice of your Son calling us to him, and we see him in all of his splendor and beauty, all of it, Lord, by your Spirit, in and through your Word. And God, we see that we can run to him and be made what we're not natively, holy, faithful, brothers, in grace and peace. Lord, I pray that this year we will commit ourselves to your word and all of the tools and resources available to us that we might learn how to study it rightly and understand it and know it. And God, that you would infuse in us the faith that we need then to live it and do these things, Father, for your glory, that at the end of this year we may celebrate all the great things that you've done in and through this people, and give you all the glory for it. We pray these things in Jesus' name.
Amen.